look at things like, what does it mean to be a fool? Uh, no one wants to be a fool. And we would never think we're a fool. Um, but when we read things like that in Scripture, uh, I think we come up with these ideas that we have these, these, these epitomes of what wrong is. And we have to work really hard to stay far away from that. And then when we read passages like that one, we say, okay, here's how I interact when I come across a fool. Here's how I need to interact with them. And it's good. That's what wisdom's for. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. We should be utilizing in that way. But I also think it's important that we consider ourselves when we read about a fool. We consider who a fool is. And today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Daniel chapter 5. It's a story about a fool. And I think we can learn a lot if we consider that maybe we at times at least are foolish. But certainly without Christ, we're hopeless fools. And if we don't think of it like that, then we won't position ourselves in life knowing we have to be dependent on Christ. Because fools need to be dependent on somebody who can do something beyond them. Because a foolish person, as we see in Scripture, there's no, there's no holding back on this. God is clearly and directly and bluntly and strongly against fools all throughout Scripture. And, this, and there's, there's no room to make a mistake when you read stuff like we just read, like verse 3, a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, a rod for the back of fools. That's pretty harsh language, right? Beat them into submission is, is clearly what it says. So what, what is a fool? Well, a fool is a, a person who is committed to their folly. They're committed to their sin in a way that no amount of knowledge and no amount of wisdom is going to convince them to turn away from it. You can't win a fool over by giving them wisdom or giving them knowledge because they're fool. They're going to return to their folly again and again. Maybe for a period of time they get things right. A period of time they make wise decisions but they're going to go back to it because that's what fools do. And they, they aren't going to learn from their mistakes. They're not going to learn from the mistakes of others. Foolish people are rooted in what they believe is right, though it's wrong. And it's not a matter of ignorance. They're, you're not foolish because you just didn't know. You know, and you still do what's wrong. You know, and you still choose the wrong path. Fools are arrogant, not ignorant. They think they know what's best, and they don't. They see the benefit of doing what's right, and they see the consequences, the destruction, the hardship, the suffering of making unwise decisions, yet they still ignore wisdom. And a fool always repeats their folly. That's verse 11 from that passage. Like a dog returns to vomit, a fool returns to folly. doesn't make sense. That's why it's foolish. But still, human beings... All throughout history have demonstrated these characteristics. And even today, this isn't just Old Testament. We have foolish tendencies because we try to fix it with head. And foolishness isn't about the head. Foolishness isn't a head issue. It's a heart issue. So we need a new heart. We need to be made new, into new creations. We need to be something else or we're going to always be a fool. You're going to do foolish things as long as you're a fool. So we need Jesus to make us new so we stop doing foolish things. Now it's important that we have this mindset when we go into this and knowing that it's a hard issue because Jeremiah, the prophet who prophesied to the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon, he, he told them this very thing in Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things. So don't be a fool and trust your heart. 
if you're not a new creation, if you don't have a new heart. We need to trust the Spirit of God, as Daniel has demonstrated already so many times in this book, and we're only in chapter 5. And so we're going to look at the story of chapter 5, and we're going to walk through it very similarly to how we walked through last week's, and uh, just taking time to explain it as we go, and see what it is God put this, or why does God put this chapter of Scripture in the Bible. So, chapter 5 of Daniel, the handwriting on the wall. That's the story, if you've heard it, and it's become a proverb, an idiom. It's like handwriting on the wall. It's an omen. It's a sign that destruction's coming, right? It's as clear as handwriting on the wall. Alright, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand and his lords and or a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, when you read this, if you're just reading through this book of the Bible and you get to this passage, having just read about King Nebuchadnezzar and you see King Belshazzar, you should stop and say, who's King Belshazzar? Where did this guy come from? And, and it, it, if you're not even familiar with the story at all, you may flip back a little bit to see, is that Daniel? Because I remember him having a name very similar. Well, his name was actually Belshazzar. Side note, Belshazzar means, and it's going to be kind of ironic for the story, it's, it's a call to the God of Babylon. Help, help me. Help the king. And Belshazzar is to his wife. So Daniel had a feminine name. But his, it's called to the, God, the goddess. Help the king. Or serve the king. Um, but that's why their name sounds similar. And so Belshazzar, who is this? Well, we have reason to hold the, the historical uh, documentation of the Bible at, as supreme over everything. As believers, we certainly should. Because we have faith in it. But even if, even if you weren't a believer, just logically, the Bible has been more authenticated and better preserved than any historical document ever. So everything the Bible says should be held as historically accurate. However, there are times when archaeological finds haven't been done yet, and there are times when names haven't been discovered yet on scrolls from the past, that we just don't know who certain people are. And so liberal scholars will rise up and they'll say, well, here's how we know the Bible is not true, because we've never had document of a Babylonian king named Belshazzar. This is a perfect example of that. And, and the existence of Belshazzar for the longest period of time was totally unknown. And in fact, we find out later that through some finds that it was probably because of how foolish he was. <laughs> he was embarrassing. Um, but also, there's some, some mystery around it uh, because he never he wasn't the king when Babylon fell. And so we know that this guy, uh, Nabonidus, was the king of Babylon when the Persians took over. And so it wasn't until about 150 years ago that we discovered uh, the, the clue that tied all of this together. And it was on a, a cylinder. They're known as the cylinders of Nabonidus. There's several of them, but they found this in particular one where he writes a prayer for his son, Belshazzar. Now, this is probably about 20 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar and, and about 30 years after the events of chapter 4. And Belshazzar uh, may not be the literal biological son of Nebuchadnezzar, though later in this chapter we're going to see the call. Nebuchadnezzar, the father of Belshazzar. The queen does. He calls it himself. Daniel even refers to your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that doesn't discredit anything because the son of a father in in the Old Testament especially and in many cultures around the world doesn't necessitate it's a biological son directly coming from the father, Nebuchadnezzar. It could be that Nebuchadnezzar is a a grandfather, a great-grandfather. Old Testament language, Aramaic and Hebrew, 
They don't have a word for grandfather, great-grandfather. They'll say your, your father's father's father. Or they give these lineage. Uh, but that didn't happen here. He just says father. So it could be in the sense. I'm just giving you all the information so you can make up your mind. It could be in a sense that he is the son of Nebuchadnezzar like Jesus is the son of David. Or we could look to Nebuchadnezzar as his father like we look to Abraham as our father. Because he's father Abraham. His many sons can never pass opportunity to say, I'm one of them and so are you. So let's praise the Lord. Right on. All right. Can we get the idea here? He could just be in, in reference to Nebuchadnezzar predecessor, forefather. But he could also be the biological son of Nebuchadnezzar. If, if it's true that Nabonidus usurped the throne from Nebuchadnezzar or from whoever followed, because we have record of Nebuchadnezzar's sons, uh, and they, they laid claim to the throne, and, and conspirators rose up and wanted to take the throne, because we're talking about Babylon, one of, the greatest, one of the greatest kingdoms ever, and they want this throne. And so they come up with all these reasons to kill off whoever, whoever's sitting there. So different leaders... Because of the book of Kings, we have record. Different leaders ruled Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar and before Nabonidus. So at some point, he took over and perhaps, and we have, we have some evidence that this may be the case, one of his daughters or maybe even a widow of Nebuchadnezzar was married to Nabonidus and Nabonidus then adopted biological son, Belshazzar. But still we have the question... How is he king of Babylon if Nabonidus is king of Babylon? As it turns out, on one of these cylinders we found 150 years ago, so it's as if the liberal scholars were saying, Bible's fake, and then they found this, and they're like, oh, wait, I guess there was a Belshazzar, and all the Bible-believing people said, welcome to knowledge. (laughs) Glad you could join us. Uh, As it turns out, Belshazzar was appointed by Nabonidus to rule over the kingdom of Babylon, while he kind of ran in fear a little bit, but also trying to secure some of the ground they're losing as a kingdom since Nebuchadnezzar's not around anymore, who is really the one holding it all together. So he decides he's going to remove himself from Babylon and move across the Arabian desert to establish a new capital city. And in this city, he would travel and try to rebuild relationships and reconquer people because the Persians are starting to take over. And this was a period of over a decade. So about 14 years, he leaves his son, Belshazzar, in charge of the city. So it not only gives us information about how this is going on from outside the scripture, but also it tells us a little bit about Belshazzar. This is a man who's never really done anything. He hasn't conquered anybody. He didn't build anything. He didn't gain any riches. He just was sat in his lap while his dad went off and tried to control the reign of Babylon. And so co-regent of Babylon, the king of Babylon, Belshazzar, is a bit of a party boy. He's probably in his 30s around this time, mid-30s. I don't know how the age of when partying stops when you're a king, but he's throwing a party, and this is fairly common. In fact, a thousand may be a small guest list compared to some of the parties kings throw. We know that, that Alexander the Great, for example, had massive parties where everyone in the kingdom was invited. So thousands and thousands of people, he just fed them all. And, and Nebuchadnezzar right now is the greatest king to ever live, but there are greater kings. Cyrus is one of them, and he's alive right now. And then Alexander the Great and others. All right, so now we have this framework heading into this chapter. It doesn't just hit us in the face with King Belshazzar out of nowhere. 
So the, the region or the regent kingdom leader, the king Belshazzar, verse one, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So a party like this uh, is, is leading us to believe all kinds of things about this man. Um, first of all, it's not common for the king to drink among the people and with the people. When he threw parties, he would be secluded, be hidden. In this time period, the king needed to protect his life. But he also wanted to care for his people. So he would do things like this to instill confidence in his people. We're going to party because we're Babylon. We can do that. We're secure within this fortress. So let's party. But it's, it's really unheard of for the king to go before the people and drink among the people. It's, it's as if he's encouraging them. Drink a lot. In fact, the word used here is continuous drinking. So he's continuously drinking in front of them again and again. And it, it, the inebriation is, is hitting all the people in such a way that inhibitions are cast aside. And, and it, it's so rare for especially a religious kingdom. Babylon's a religious kingdom, remember. They worship all these gods for them to defame any other religious item. To, to, go against, to be sacrilegious in any way is unheard of. But the inebriation reaches a point where... That's okay with Belshazzar, and it seems to be okay with everyone else at the party. And it, it's, it's safe to assume things went as far as your, imagine can take, your imagination can take them because the self-indulgent was on a high there. And he wanted, let's just to give you an idea, he wanted to share his wives and his concubines with his friends. We actually have multiple historical uh, uh, accounts of this drunken party because... Spoiler alert, this is the very night that Babylon falls. So everyone in the world is writing about this. We know there was a party going on in Babylon. We know they were, all the leaders of Babylon were drunk and out of their minds and couldn't defend themselves. So the intoxicated Belshazzar decides he's going to step up his debauchery game and tack on some sacrilege. And he calls for the vessels from the temple of Jerusalem that he didn't conquer Nebuchadnezzar did. That he didn't bring in, Nebuchadnezzar did. But he's going he's gonna to take them in, and he's going to hold them up, and he's going to drink from them. So sitting on top of his riches, sitting on top of his, his apparent fame, throwing one of the greatest parties, sharing his wealth with all his favorite people, gaining nothing for himself, has no sense of responsibility to protect himself as king, especially not to protect his people in the kingdom. And why would he, though? Why? I mean, he feels safe. This is Babylon, right? They have a fortress. No one's getting in. They can afford to party like this. And he's falling into the same folly that we saw Nebuchadnezzar fall into last chapter. When he, when he was so caught up in his own strength, caught up in his own power, thinking it was all about him, very easily rested in his, in his throne room. He rested on his bed and he 
dream to dream, right? So we have this picture of a man falling into the same folly that we know Nebuchadnezzar fell into, and he certainly knows of Nebuchadnezzar's fall. And then he declares his desire to praise his gods, blaspheming the one true God that Nebuchadnezzar praises after his humiliation, bringing the vessels. So how does the Lord respond to such foolishness? Verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So imagine this scene of this man who thinks it's all about him, boasting, holding up in his hand this chalice, this vessel from the throne room of God with wine in it, as if he's saying, I hold the God of Israel in my hand. And then, literally, the hand of the God of Israel shows up in the room and starts writing on a wall. Everyone sobers up really quickly, right? The music stops playing. The concubines stop dancing. It's like a record skipped. And I don't know how loud it was, but just imagine someone carving into a wall. The hand of God, not just someone. The hand of God carving into a wall. And it's the, the language here in verse 6 is embarrassing for a king especially. He grows pale in his face. Fear overtakes him. He's fearing for his life. What is going on? And, and the translation literally from the, the Aramaic to the Hebrew and then to the English. The, but the translation literally from Hebrew is the joints of his loins were loosened. He loses control of the bottom half of his body. Panic overtakes him. Some scholars believe he's not just losing control of like his hip sockets, but also his bowels and his bladder. You get the idea here. This man is terrified, as he should be. Because he's the one in charge. It's not like he can say, hey, somebody take care of this. It's, it's his kingdom. and this is, It's laughable, and it should be. This mighty man of Babylon, terrified in this way, in this stupefied, drunken, confused panic, he calls for help. And here come our boys who never fix anything. Verse 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers because they know all things. And the king declares to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, a royal garment, and, be, and have chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So third ruler, Nabonidus is first, Belshazzar is second, and they'll be third right under him. So he's going to make them rich. He's going to give them honor. He's going to make them royal. And they'll have power. They'll be known. They'll sit right beside him. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. So it, they, they probably could see that it was words. It was written in Aramaic, as we're going to find out. But they can't decipher it. They can't understand it. And one commentary said, perhaps God wrote in a way that they just couldn't understand it. Like he had a special flick at the end of his hand signature or something. I don't know. I don't know what they were trying to say, but that's what they said. So for whatever reason, God is not allowing them to understand whatever's written on this wall. 
Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. So apparently he gained some hope when he saw these guys walking in. He's like, okay, they got it, man. These wise men who never failed Nebuchadnezzar, they're going to get this. And then when they didn't, again, his color changed and, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall. So even more scared and confused than he was, he's crying out all the, all the louder with such anxiety that the queen hears it when she comes in. Now, this isn't a wife of Belshazzar, because remember, his wives and concubines are already a part of the party. They're drunk with everybody else. The queen, named here, the language is queen mother. So, this woman... The mother of Belshazzar, likely the widow or daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, enters the room to save the day. This is highly prestigious individual, apparently, because she doesn't have to ask permission to step into the room, which everyone does if you go into the king's room. She's not necessarily invited to the party to just show up, but sober-minded because she's not a child, walks into the room to calm things down. And she's going to get her son to stop being embarrassing. And the queen declared, O king, live forever, which you have to say. Let not your thoughts be alarm, or alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Remember, holy Elohim. In the days of your father, light and understanding, the, the wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. Now, she's giving him every praise you could possibly give a man, telling him everything about him is going to be able to fix this. Like, definitely, this man knows everything. He's always solved every riddle. He's always interpreted every dream. She's speaking of this man as if she knows him personally. And even more so, she calls him by his actual name, Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Get that T in there. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. She's not saying let him let him have a try also because maybe he can do it. She's saying he certainly can do this. If you want to know what it says, you need to get Daniel in here. She's seen this before. She knows how it goes. She knows he's the man to call. Now, Daniel, at this point, is a very old man. So we are about 70 years into exile. It's almost over. And Babylon's reign is coming to a close tonight. And so Daniel is probably in his 80s. He's a really old man, right? So they send somebody to go get Daniel because the queen recommended it. And you just have to imagine Daniel, who doesn't really, may not know Belshazzar. You have to imagine what he's thinking because it doesn't tell us. Now, he's not, he's not in the same position of authority that he held with Nebuchadnezzar, but he's still a faithful man of God. He's not intimidated by earthly kings, so he's not scared to go before Belshazzar. And he knows Belshazzar is a foolish man. But also, he's lived a lot of life, he's seen a lot of things. He's got some confidence about him just from personal experience, but he's totally dependent, never shaken, totally dependent on God. We're never given any indication that Daniel's faith ever wavered. And so they go get Daniel, old man Daniel, 
Hey, King needs you. Got another one of the interpretation things. So he gets up. Uh, uh, I don't know if he had a cane. I'm just trying to picture it. He wants to be there. And there's a labyrinth of ways to get to the, this room where they're worshiping. So he's got a ways to walk. It's a big kingdom. I don't know where he lived. They're bringing him in to the king. And you have to consider his disposition when he walks into this room. Sees the fallout of the party. Thousand people terrified. The king shaken, pale-faced. Pooped on himself. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Now, this is the king desperate to maintain some sense of dignity despite the circumstances he sees himself in, speaking to Daniel as if he's still a prisoner, a slave, reminding him of who he is, an exile of Judah, but also recalling in the same breath, this is the God I just blasphemed. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read the writings, the writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can. You can give interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can, read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So he wants to show Daniel the same thing he offered his, his wise men. He wants to know what's on the wall, whatever it takes. So he tells Daniel, look, I'm going to give you all of this stuff. I've heard you possess what it takes to interpret it for me. Please, can you do that? Except for he probably didn't say please. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your reward to another. Now, this is forcibly forcibly said, but very kindly said, but we understand it like this. He's saying, I see that your gifts are important to you. I see that these things you've named have value to you and probably also to others, but I'm good actually. I don't need that. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So without anything you could offer me, I'm going to do this for you anyway. But he's also buying himself an opportunity to preach a little bit. Because he's about to lay on this guy a burn. He's about to show him exactly what's going on before he makes this interpretation. He needs to see this pathetic man realize his folly. O King, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of an ox or of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and he fed. He was fed grass like an ox 
and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So this is a summary of what we read last week. But Belshazzar already knows this. Daniel's just given him an opportunity to remember. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You're all guilty, he's saying. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know because they're fake. They're not even real gods. You're praising them against the wishes of the one true God, blaspheming His very name. But the God in whose hand is your breath and and whose are all your ways, you totally belong to God even though you don't know it, you have not honored. So, Belshazzar, you want to compare yourself to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, let's do that for a second. You're nothing like him. You can never be anything like him. He's the greatest king the world has ever known. But all his power, all his majesty, all of his might was given to him by the God you just blasphemed. No man could ever stop Nebuchadnezzar. He did whatever he wanted. Whoever he wanted to take over, he took them over. He never failed. He ruled the known world and he gained for himself all of these riches. He built for himself this kingdom that you stand now the king of, yet you are nothing like him. He had reason to boast if any man had reason to boast, but you have nothing, yet you boast. And Nebuchadnezzar failed to see that all of this was a gift by the grace of the Most High. And he failed to humble himself, so... God humbled him and made him a beast. And until he knew that the Most High ruled the kingdom of man and sets over it whom he wills, he remained a beast. And he came to know that. He worshipped the Most High as the God above all. And then he was restored. But you, Belshazzar, are truly a, a worthless person. You are unworthy in every way to be compared to Nebuchadnezzar, much less defame and... and Denounce this God that you just denounced. And you knew all of this happened. And you didn't learn from it. You're a fool. Though you knew all of it, you exalted yourself still and you worshipped your gods, dishonoring the one true God who holds your life in His hands. And this night His hand showed up. So we need not miss this before we move on to the interpretation. We don't need to miss what's going on here. We, the people who are examining ourselves for foolishness, need to consider, are we failing to learn? Are we failing to believe? Because church, it does not matter how much you know. It does not matter how much information you have about the Bible. It doesn't matter how well you can articulate the gospel. If you don't believe it, you're a fool. In fact, it's because of our knowledge that we're condemned in the first place. That's what Romans 1 talks about. We reference Romans 1 these last two weeks when we consider that these people turn from the Creator to worship creation. But just before that bit of the passage in Romans 1 verse 18, we learn about 
how knowledge condemns. The wrath, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So that they were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is where Belshazzar is. This is where Babylon is. This is where everyone who's ever been born with a sin nature is. Fools with darkened hearts. Because though we see the creation around us, though we know the evidence of God's greatness... All around us. Though Belshazzar knows the history of his people and the kings that have come before him. He knows it. Though Babylon has experienced this work of God because the people of God are living among them and faithful to him. They see it. They know it. They've experienced it. And they're failing to believe it's true. And they continue to turn their hearts to other gods. Explicitly worshiping their gods who are not real gods. And so, to this, God responds with a very difficult message. To them, to us, God responds with a very difficult message in verse 24. His hand shows up, and He wrote on the wall, Then from His presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Anyone know the translation? If you keep reading, they'll tell us. I just want to know if anyone knew. All right. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered, this word literally means numbered, the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed. This word literally means weighed. And there's something unique about biblical language. So passive voice, your English teacher probably gets on to you a lot. Passive voice in the Bible is often used to point to the divine. So we have this term, the divine passive. Now, this is what's going on here. So it doesn't explicitly say by God, but it means by God. So when it says, you have been weighed, it's pointing back to what was named in verse 26. God has numbered. So you have been weighed by God in the balances and found wanting. Perez, which is the singular term. Your kingdom is divided. It means divided by God and given by God to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel's interpreted for the king these three words. One of them appeared twice. Mene, mene, parson, or tekel, parson. Now, there are measurements that they use in the marketplace in this time period. Just like we would use, like when you go to the grocery store and you weigh out your produce. So you know how much it costs. According to the pound. So here's this is kind of the language that's going on. These are nouns, though they were translated as verbs by Daniel. This mene from the Hebrew word mina, which is a large measurement. You you weigh it out to buy like bags of flour, things like that. So it's a large measurement. Tekel, the Hebrew word shekel, which is still a currency in the Middle East. Shekel is a common weight that you just stack up on the scale. So imagine the scale. You want to know how much something weighs. You put your shekels on. And when it balances out, that's how much it weighs. So we're talking about physical things. I see these words. They don't really make sense because that's all that's written on the wall. But God gives Daniel this interpretation. Shekel. Weighed. Mene. Is. um, Numbered. (laughs) 
numbered because you have to number these things out. So numbered, numbered, weighed, divided is really what it says. And then Perez uh, is a word play actually because in, in Aramaic, just like in Hebrew, there's no, there's no uh, vowels. Vowel pointing was added later. So this word, as it's written on the wall, is the same exact lettering that they would use to say Persia. But it also is a measurement that is half of a shekel. So it's literally a shekel cut in half to make finer payments. So it's interesting how it's translated as verbs, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. It's even more interesting how it's directly applied, not just to Belshazzar, but to his kingdom. So time is up. Your days have been numbered and the number is up. You've been weighed out. You don't measure up. And so your kingdom will be divided. There's our interpretation, and I would imagine there's some awkwardness in the room at this point. There's, there's no silence written in between verses 28 and 29, but I imagine there was some silence for a moment as it's sinking in, as Belshazzar is gaining his sobriety still. Tonight, things are over. Time is up. The end is right now. You've been weighed out by this God. You don't weigh enough. Your kingdom will be divided. Not just split up between the Medes and the Persians. Because Medo-Persian is actually one one kingdom. But divided, destroyed, split up, broken up. You no longer are going to have a a united kingdom. And so there must have been this, this amount of processing that Belshazzar had to do. But as it turns out, he's a man of his word. In verse 29, though Daniel didn't really want it. Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, you don't really want to be the third ruler of a kingdom that's about to be destroyed because usually the leaders go into prison or they're killed. Um, But God is always faithful, protects Daniel, as we'll see next week. Um, But Daniel's given this place of authority Um, And and this very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. Again, written in divine passive, God had him killed. And Darius the Mede received from God the kingdom, beginning or being about 62 years old. So there we have it, a very sad story, a tragedy, yet... We trust God's sovereignty, and though we never really was fond, we were never really fond of Babylon. We've been there a while, you know, a little bit of a relationship established, and we can join Daniel, knowing we're the people of God, secure that God is in control, not just over kings but over kingdoms. And now, according to ancient record, this invasion that took place that took down the life of Belshazzar and the kingdom of Babylon, the great kingdom of Babylon. Um, it took one night to, to get it done. Now, that doesn't happen, especially with a great kingdom like Babylon. So apparently they've been surrounding the kingdom for some time. In fact, historical record shows that Nabonidus had already been captured. And, and perhaps they knew in, in Babylon, but they didn't seem to care too much this night because they were secure and within their walls. And Babylon is this massive city, virtually impenetrable fortress of a kingdom. And, and the Euphrates flowed straight through it, so they had no need to ever leave because they had constant water. So they were secure. They felt everything was good. There was no way this was going to happen, certainly not in one night. So if someone did reach the wall, we could take them out. 
We have one of the greatest armies the world has ever seen. And, and I talked a lot about Babylon last week, but I left out some details. The, the walls were high and the walls were wide. So the smallest record of any Babylonian wall was 100 feet, and the largest is 300 feet high. And then the wall's width were wide enough at least for two chariots to ride side by side. So the smallest is 25 feet wide, but the largest record is 80 feet wide. 80 feet. Who needs an 80 foot wide wall? It's ridiculous. But all around this city, as tall as 300 feet, as wide as 80 feet, was this wall for miles and miles. And it was built in such a way that there were a hundred or so ways in. So they had these different entrances. And, and some of these uh, were these massive gates that we still have some, some preserved. And in fact, Berlin, I was in Berlin, I didn't even know this until I just read it. They, they have a museum and one of the walls from Babylon is stored there, measuring a hundred feet in height. This giant wooden door. And it was made of the hardest wood ever because this is Babylon we're talking about. And it was coated in bronze. This thick wall, this, this thick door, coated in bronze. And every gate had soldiers and guards in charge of the gates. There's no way in the mind of Belshazzar or anyone else that anyone was getting through this wall. Or over. This is not going to happen. They were secure. However, somehow... Darius the Mede conquers the city in one night. How does this happen? Well, first of all, who in the world is Darius? <laughs> right? We should ask that question. Well, as it turns out, Darius is actually not necessarily the man's name, but his royal title. Darius or Darius is a Persian name given to someone in charge of a kingdom, a royal person over a kingdom. So King Darius is, is actually King King, which is kind of cool name, I guess. Uh, and he was a Mede. So we know from uh, history that the Medes were overtaken by Cyrus the Great of, over Persia before Babylon was overtaken. And we don't know exactly who this Darius guy is, but it could be one of two people. It could either be the king himself, the Persian king Cyrus II, uh, who was in fact half Mede. Fun fact. And I know, Or it could also be, and I, I tend to think it was the general of the army who has an awesome name, Gabaru, all right, General Gabaru, who uh, one source said that he was actually with Nabonidus and then defected to Persia because Belshazzar, of all people, killed his son, and he was a little bit bitter against Belshazzar. And so we know this because of historical document outside of the Bible. And the, the night that Babylon went down was a big deal, and it, it was so so precise that in fact we know the day, October twelfth, five thirty nine B.C. The Medo-Persian army dammed up the Euphrates River, brilliant, and went under the wall. The entire army, under the cover of night, while all the leaders of Babylon are, are in this drunken stupor of debauchery, they sneak into the city. And because their walls were so great, they only put guards at the gates. So once they're in the city, they're in. And that very night, they overtake the entire kingdom in one fatal swoop. Pretty incredible, historically incredible, but also more incredible that God sent them and told Daniel it was coming and sent Daniel to the king to tell him it was coming and there's still nothing he could do about it. So last week we talked about pride 
and how we're so easily caught up on ourselves. We think so highly of who we are and we're, our self-interest is the highest priority. Whether you want it to be or not, we're always thinking about ourselves. Even the most selfish or selfless things we could do, like protecting our family, is still innately selfish because we're protecting our family, the things we love. We would lay down our lives for things we love. So it's still about us. We live day to day as if we're in control and we foolishly think that we know better than God does what's best for our lives. And so we get angry at God sometimes. We don't like life situations. We hate the way things are. Or we live foolishly in abandonment of any of the rules because I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do me. You do you. We live as if our life belongs to ourselves. It's a difficult thing to process, but it's true. No matter what we're told, no matter what we see happen to other people, no matter what we personally experience, we'll continue to return to sin. Because it's our sinful nature trying to take over. Even as Christians, we're at war with ourselves. Trying to put to death this pride, thinking we know best. And then we saw last week that God... Demonstrating his sovereignty over all men, even the greatest of men like Nebuchadnezzar. Demonstrating his sovereignty in such a way that he brings himself glory for our good. And he humbles us for our good. And we begin to see the sweetness of Christ. And we're satisfied in him in a way that we can never find satisfaction in this world or in anything we can accomplish for ourselves. And so this humility that overtakes us is good. This feeling small is good because we see how big God is. The Christ, though God Himself, would epitomize this humble submission and give Himself up on the cross and lay down His life so that we wouldn't be condemned for this pride that overtakes us. We learned that last week, right? We gained that knowledge. If you were listening, you gained that knowledge last week. But if we're honest, looking back, Monday to now, Did you pause more often to consider and pray and think how big God is and how small you are? Did you consider as you made your daily decisions, as you live for you, how you actually live for God? Did you lay down more things? Did you sacrifice more as we think about it? I mean, did you plan according to the word of God to reorient your life around the mission of God because you truly see he's better? Or did you continue to primarily establish your own kingdom and worry about yourself and your well-being? Just a, just a time of reflection on that. Don't be buried in shame. Don't feel condemned for it, but consider it. Because I think that we are guilty often of failing in the same way Belshazzar, or Belshazzar fails here. We see and we know the truth, yet we don't believe it. We don't live according to it. And that's what our flesh does. That's what the sinful nature does. Every time sinful nature chooses sin. It's not to say you don't have free will. You do. You have free will. But because you have a sinful nature, you're going to choose sin. Unless, by the grace of God, we're made new. So don't look back at last week and think... Shame on me because again, I heard the truth. I acknowledge the truth. I see how King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. I realize I could be humbled in that way. I see my need to repent. I see the greatness of God over all the kings of earth, over every great man who's ever lived. I see, I see it, but I still want to live for me. I still have control. I'm I'm still going to do what I want to do in life. Shame on me. Don't think that way. Instead, find the truth. 
Cling to the truth. Believe the truth. You're not who you used to be. You're not who you were last week. You're being made new time and again as grace abounds. Cling to Christ. He's laid down His life so that you could celebrate life in Him. The sin is heavy, yes. Your sin is humongous. We're such fools. But God has done everything necessary to free us of that. To lift that burden. Christ, in fact, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. We're free from it. Not just from our own sin, but from the kingdoms of the world. Because this chapter, unlike last one, speaks something more specifically to the kingdom and not to the king. Yes, Belshazzar lost his life, but also the great city of Babylon was overtaken. Demonstrating to the people of God in this time, who when they see a king fall, when Nebuchadnezzar died, they knew he was going to be replaced with another king. There's just going to be another king to rule over us. And perhaps an even more evil king, as it turns out, an ignorant and foolish king. But when God demonstrates something more, not just am I over kings, but I'm over kingdoms. When he shows no matter how great the kingdom, I can easily replace it with another. And there will come a kingdom like a stone formed by no human hand that will destroy all of these kingdoms. And plant itself and grow And establish this kingdom. This is the dream of chapter 2. There's coming a kingdom like no other. And this kingdom will be ruled by the Son of Man. This kingdom will be ruled by the King of Kings. This kingdom will be ruled by a king that's for our good. So the Lord wrote on this wall, not just to Belshazzar, but to the kingdom. Your kingdom is numbered. The, The days of your kingdom is numbered. And it's at an end. Your kingdom will be divided. So we can see the names and read them in in history of demagogues and rulers. And we can hear about the kingdoms of the earth and how powerful they were in conquering all the other nations. And we can learn about empires and the, the length of their rule and the breadth of their rule. But all of them are dead and gone. All of them are over. Those kingdoms have passed away. The influence is no longer here. Even as new fears rise up, like with Hitler and his Nazis, where new fears rise up, like with ISIS and whatever they may become, they're nothing in light of the kingdom of God that is sure to come. In fact, the kingdom of God that has come and is here and is being established through His people, the church. They're all dead and gone. No matter who they were, no matter how powerful they were, eventually they're relegated to pages of a book And those books will be burned. But there is an everlasting kingdom that's laying waste to all the others as the stone lands. And there is but one everlasting kingdom and all will submit to this king whether they choose to or not. They will bow. They will confess he's Lord because he is Lord over all. And as the Lord brought down the mightiest kingdom on earth to give it to another by the killing of Belshazzar, the king, the king's son, Belshazzar, the the son of Nebuchadnezzar, was killed and the kingdom was overtaken. Well, the son of God, the king of kings, was killed and he became sin so that the kingdom of Satan, the kingdoms of the world would be overtaken by the kingdom of God. 
as it's established forever. And we submit ourselves to this King because it's for our good and our freedom from the sin that you struggled with this last week and the sin you're going to struggle with in the week to come. Have no shame in it. Embrace your freedom in Christ. Work for this kingdom because it's all that there is in the end. Praise the King. Let's pray. Father, I praise You for how good You are, how faithful You always are. And You have done all things necessary before we were even here. Though we were a thought, though we before the foundations of the earth were called according to this purpose, established as Your people, once following the ways of this world, now called to be Your church at work, establishing Your kingdom and putting to death every desire that would rise up in us to establish our own. God, kill it. Let us lay down our idols. Let us see You're the supreme God of all creation, the Most High, that You have laid down Your life to establish Your kingdom. And You have already made us a part of it. Let us find the freedom, the joy to feast and celebrate secure in Your kingdom, but also live lives according to Your will as Your people on mission, establishing Your kingdom, conquering the world for our King, with this truth, this good news that would change hearts, that would give us new desires, that would give us new natures so that we would desire what is good, so that we would celebrate what is good, so that we would praise You in all of life. God, free us from the shame that we're so tempted to bury ourselves in. Free us from the foolishness of, of being controlled by our insecurities or our fears or being controlled by our selfish ambitions. God, let us find true freedom in the true King of Kings. Rule and reign in our hearts today as we praise You for it. Let us be a people that don't settle for knowledge, but we see it sink down into belief that would change us from the core It would change our behavior, not because we modify it, but because we're no longer who we used to be. In Jesus' name, amen.